Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. On today's episode, we are sitting down with Dr. Shayna Weiss. When you think about an academic, you probably imagine an older man, maybe a little stodgy, probably in a bow tie. One time, I even had a professor who spent the entire class smoking a cigar in a tweed suit. Well, on today's episode, we're going to speak with somebody amazing who takes that mold and smashes it, Dr. Shana Weiss. Dr. Weiss is an incredible woman. A professor of Israel studies, she's come into this field of academia as somebody completely different. She's a young woman, she's a genius, she talks about the plights of minorities in Israel, she lectures about Herzl as a hipster, and she studies the evolving role of women in Judaism. I am so excited to have her on this podcast today because her work is so pertinent to the experience of Jewish women in the modern world. As new opportunities open that never could have been possible just a century ago, we are entering fields we were once excluded from and fundamentally changing them for the better. I want to ask her about that. What is it like to be a woman in a field that women couldn't be a part of? What is it like to teach Jewish studies at an Air Force Academy? How does an American scholar view Israeli society? Just like Shana Weiss, women today are bringing to light these important conversations that demand recognition. Gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, religion, inequality. Dr. Weiss does this in a way that is empowering, accessible, and really groundbreaking. She is all of the new and exciting parts of Jewish academia, and she's a massive part of the shifting both of the field and the Jewish community in an exciting direction. I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Shayna Weiss is the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Previously, she was the inaugural Distinguished Visiting Scholar in Israel Studies at the United States Naval Academy. She earned her PhD from New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies. She completed postdoctoral fellowships in Israel at Bar-Ilan University and Tel Aviv University, where she taught courses about Israeli history and society. She has also taught at Brooklyn College and New York University. Her research interests converge at the intersection of religion and gender in the Israeli public sphere, as well as the politics of Israeli popular culture. She is completing a book on gender segregation in the Israeli public sphere. So needless to say, today's guest is quite an impressive woman. Shana Weiss, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, So to start off, I want to talk a bit about your relationship with Judaism growing up. Um, What role did Judaism play in your family when you were younger? Right. So I am from Jacksonville, Florida, which is North Florida. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about an hour south of Georgia on the Atlantic Ocean. So I am not from the Miami area. That's about two hours (laughs) south. And that's sort of the first question that I get often from Jews is, oh, how far are you from Miami? Six hours. So (laughs) I grew up in a pretty conservative, um, I would say middle-sized town. Jacksonville is actually not that small, although it is spread out. There is a definitely an established Jewish community, but it's not large. In terms of my family affiliation, it was big C, sort of conservative Judaism. Um, And my family was not particularly observant, but we went to synagogue on the holidays, had 
big Passover seders. Um, I always went to summer camp. And I think especially because the dominant culture was so white and evangelical Christian, my parents really made an effort to invest in things like summer camp and Hebrew school and things like that. Um, when I was in high school, I started getting more interested in traditional Jewish practice. And to make a sort of very long story short, um, I became Orthodox, traditionally observant, partially through NCSY, um, partially through other things. I was actually inspired at first, like many people, through my experience at Camp Ramah with keeping Shabbat. Um, you know, story of my religiosity is a very long story, but by the end of high school, I wouldn't say, I mean, I still consider myself Orthodox, but I was somewhat disenchanted with some of the things I saw um, with NCSY and um, especially around gender. I'll just tell a couple of vignettes about sort of how I related to Judaism and mm -hmm. thought about Judaism. For me, it was really being a minority, and that was not just religious, religiously because um, of evangelical Christian culture, which was really big in the South, it was also physically. And obviously, I say this as someone who is like stereotypically Ashkenazi, this does not apply to all Jews, but like, my name is Shana Weiss, I have curly hair, I have pale skin, like, I'm pretty stereotypical. Um, for example, the only other girl in my grade who had curly hair, her name was Zaina, and she was Palestinian. We didn't actually look that much alike, but between Zaina and Shana and two, let's say, Semitic teenagers, no one could yeah. ever tell us apart. Um, my parents actually took us a lot to Arab restaurants. Um, there's actually a big Arab and Palestinian population in Jacksonville. And I think it's partially because it was the closest way to get to something that was Middle Eastern food. Um, and, you know, my dad would make jokes that, like, you know, here we don't have, like, the land issues we have back there. We understand <laughs> that the people who are sort of our enemy, I mean, he was being facetious there, but the people are, are you know, sort of like the white evangelicals, the things we have co in common with, you know, immigrant culture, things like that, are the Arabs. Um, there was actually a pita bakery run by an old Arab man that had hashkata when I was growing up. Um, and it was the best pita. It was like the only place in Jacksonville to get like real pita, not like crappy grocery store pita. Yeah. Um, and his name was Farhat. And I remember like you could go there. It was open from like seven to two. Just like to me, ancient, like old um, Arab man who would then like hand you pita. That was the only thing they made. Uh, so it was, I'd say, something really defined by difference in small numbers. That, of course, changed when I went to Brandeis as an undergraduate um, and further on. But that was my experience in Jacksonville. Yeah, and I think that's incredible. When I think of a Floridian Jew, I think of families like my family who are New York expats, moved to South Florida, and are probably in like a older Jewish alcove. But your experience was super different. It was defined by being a minority and you related to other minority groups in that way of kind of a common experience, which I think was a really beautiful thing to hear. Um, and I want to kind of unpack all of this, but before we get to that, um, I want to talk about your experience in Jewish academia, because right now it feels like we're going through this multidimensional renaissance where women are having a more prominent role in academia than ever before. Um, Jews are having a more prominent role in academia than ever before. All of this is happening at once. So let's just unpack all of that starting off. So you're entering or you're, you're in this academic field at a time when women are playing a more prominent role and have the ability to play a more prominent role than ever before. How has the shift affected you? So like everywhere else, academia has been dominated by a certain kind of man. Yeah. And that plays out 
not just in terms of, let's say, like horrible behavior, and like we can list plenty of examples of that, including within Jewish studies, um, but also in terms of what people research and what people think is important. So, for example, let's take Jewish studies. Jewish studies started as something that was very often focusing on text. And this I mean like things like Talmud or Bible, and that was the most important way to understand Jewish history. There's a newer generation of Jewish studies that says, well, let's look at things like social movements, songs, dances, what people are creating, and maybe we're more interested in the body. How does the Jewish body act, right? We mentioned, you know, this was especially interesting for me as someone who, you know, has curly hair, and that was a marker of difference growing up in North Florida. And I find myself in all of that. So it definitely feels like a place of transition. Yeah. It happens every day that, you know, there are sort of terrible micro and macro aggressions within Jewish studies, within academia. Um, but I do think that there are people fighting really hard to change that and make a role for a more diverse academic profession. And in Jewish studies, one of the things we see that I think is the most interesting is a larger number of scholars of Jewish studies who they themselves are not necessarily Jewish, mm-hmm. coming from all different sorts of backgrounds. Uh, one of my colleagues from Brandeis is a, a Muslim who grew up in Egypt. He did his PhD at Brandeis. He's now a professor of Israeli and Jewish studies at University of Michigan, right? So like that's a very different trajectory than let's say someone like me, an American Jew who grew up in North Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but it adds. It adds so much to it and makes for a much richer conversation. And I'm really excited to see the field continue to develop. Um, We are also paying more attention to non-Ashkenazi Jews, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned to you before when we were chatting that Brandeis just hired a Mizrahi Sephardi Studies professor. Um, It's becoming more and more important to include discussions of these Jewish communities, both within Israel and sort of historically. And that's really, really important as well. Yeah, I think that's something that's been shifting in the Jewish studies world. I think it's been shifting in the larger Jewish community conversation as well. Um, I think it's one thing that, like, growing up, I I didn't even know what the word Mizrahi meant. My family is Mizrahi. Um, I, like, knew it was half Ashkenazi, half Sephardi. I didn't know what Mizrahi even meant until I got older, and I was like, oh, my God, I qualify as this thing I didn't even know existed. And I think it's been really – fun isn't the right word. It's been really just, I guess, inspiring to see the shift in the community toward being – more, um, I think, aware of all of the differences that we have, but also all of the commonalities that we have, too, in, in light of all of that. And it's, yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> in, in Jacksonville, I knew two Mizrahi people. Well, I should say one Mizrahi dad, my friend's dad, Moti. Um, it was a classic study. He was Tunisian. So, um, his, um, my friend's mom went on like a USY summer in Israel trip in the 80s. And to make a long story short, married the tour guide. Um, so that was that's one. That's the dream. That's the, the dream, dream, right? The Every true time. Zionist dream. Um, I mean, my brother and my brother and just his wife actually also met on birthright, so we have lots of that in the family. But um, I, there was one Moroccan Israeli family, and I remember going to them for the first time for Friday night dinner. And I was like, I mean, this is the '90s in Florida. There's not yeah. now. There are actually a lot of Mizrahi in Jacksonville. I was yeah. like, these are the most exotic people I had ever met. Um, I remember two things about the meal. One, the Salatim course. I thought that was all the food. And I was like, it's kind of weird that they don't have, like, chicken. But, like, okay, whatever. There's, like, good salads. This is, like, free Ashkenazi Jews eating hummus, you know. And then the second thing was um, 
the father saying Birkat Hamazon like allowed for everyone and I was like do I have to say it again I was like I guess I'll just go home um but yeah I'm really thrilled to see that because it just makes for such a richer understanding of Jewish history yeah I mean growing up on Long Island even I didn't know any other Mizrahi families my family is a Kaf Ashkenazi but it was just like Mizrahi culture I just called it Israeli culture which is like what I did at home and that was just my own thing but it's been cool to see it become more of a prominent piece of Jewish life, I think, more broadly. Yeah, we can talk about Mizrahi identity is a newer identity and should it apply to American Jews who come from these same places? And I think that's also a really interesting and important conversation as well. Um, I'm just thinking of my friend Michal Bitone, who is a scholar who argues, I think, pretty convincingly that Mizrahi is an Israeli term and that American Jews should be called Sardi. Um, But I think it's a part of a really interesting and important conversation, especially because Mizrahi just means Easterner, which is like kind of weird when yeah. you translate it so like and is definitely an israeli creation so but i think these debates about labels and what fits is part of these really important conversations and i'll end with just saying the professor that we just hired his his full title is actually director of Sephardi onaman and mizrahi studies partially because like we're not quite sure what the best way is to call this but we didn't want to say like not ashkenazi jews like that's awkward you don't call someone a chair yeah. of not ashkenazi jews. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with um, Jason Goobman, who runs the American Sephardi Federation, because he also mm-hmm. kind of says Mizrahi is Sephardi in America. So if we're talking about America, we should be using the term Sephardi. My mom's grandparents were, they're like, they're kind of from everywhere. They're from Yemen, from Iraq, from Spain, from like the whole kind of mix. Mm-hmm. And they just called themselves Sephardi. But my grandma was, she was born in Tel Aviv of March of 48. So she loves to say she was born wow. the same year of Israel. <laughs> so like her family that lives back in Israel now can like, I guess, use the term Israeli. My grandma uses the term Sephardi. And it's always this like large conversation of how do we identify? Because there's the Sephardi family who was in Spain and came like, you know, through the whole Mediterranean and was in a thousand places. And then there was the family that was in like Iraq and Yemen who never even went to Spain. So how do we make that differentiation? Right. It's a whole larger, super complicated conversation that I have no idea how to answer. <laughs> I don't either, but it's a good yeah. conversation to have. Yeah, I want I want to shift though and talk about your work um, because your work is amazing and we have to get into it. Um, so how did you find yourself in this field? What drew you to it? How did you end up here? When I think about my political awareness or my sort of awareness of the world, I really do have to thank my parents who brought me up like reading the news at breakfast and talking about it and like having conversations about world events. Um, I remember them talking to me about the Rabin assassination. I was about 10 at the time um, and why it happened. And, um, you know, my parents were supporters of Oslo. So they talked about, you know, it Rabin in a very favorable way and thinking about peace and the need to continue it on. My understanding, however, or my interest, I think, to some extent, goes back to a pretty crazy story. So I mentioned, you know, the Rabin assassination. About a year or so later, Shimon Peres, who was then the prime minister, did a speaking tour across the U.S. Um, to basically drum up American support for the continuation of Oslo. Unclear how this happened, but he ended up speaking in Jacksonville. Heads of state don't, like, show up in Jacksonville on a regular basis. To put it mildly, (laughs) especially Israeli heads of state, the biggest venue that they did was the conservative synagogue that I grew up in, and they set it up for high holiday seating. So, like, you know, all the walls down, all the extra chairs, et cetera. I think it held 1,500 people. 
and they took me. Um, as a kid, I was probably you know, 11 or 12 by that time, nerdy kid, interested in the world around us. They thought even if I didn't understand everything, you know, it'd be a good thing for me to experience. Totally right. Um, I remember something I understand now that I didn't understand then as there was some tension about the idea of dividing Jerusalem. And I was like, where is this coming from? Now I know what they meant. Yeah. But that's only the background. A week or so later, the president of the shul's daughter was having a bat mitzvah. Kids were playing around outside, as they do during the shul in the lobby, and they found a bomb. Um, yeah, I wish you could put like, your wow. face in the podcast. Wow. <laughs> One of the kids was old enough, probably like eight or nine, to be like, this is, I should find an adult. They find an adult. The adult calls 911, and they say, evacuate the building. So imagine this poor girl. It's her bat mitzvah, stressful enough. You know, they evacuate the synagogue. SWAT team comes, everything, and they detonate the bomb. And this um, is a week after? This is like a week or two after Shimon Paris had spoken there. Wow. It turns out, and again, this is making a very long story short, that the bomb had been placed by the local kosher butcher. It's a crazy story. Um, in his, he was in opposition to Oslo. So it's like he had lived in Israel. He had lived in the settlements for a while. Um, and this was like the talk of the town. I mean, I was just looking this up. He was younger than me when he did it. He was like 30, 31. He wow. claims that the bomb was only meant to scare people, that it was never meant to go off. They argued that he was just bad at building a bomb, and that's why it didn't go off. Look, I don't know. Um, but it was a huge community scandal. The Orthodox oh rabbi God. at the time knew about it, didn't tell anyone. Um, he claimed cr- clergy privilege. Spoiler, that's not how clergy privilege works, if it's a future event. Um, no. This is actually all detailed in a chapter of Jew versus Jew, um, this book um, that came out in the 2000s, if you want wow. more juicy details. I think I might have to. <laughs> um, eventually... The um, bomber was put in prison. Yeah. Um, he has since gone out of prison, whatever. I mean, we can talk about that all day. But for me, I, I was just like, what is going on, right? You were like I 12 thought, years old. What's happening? I was like 12 years old. I knew all the people involved. It's a small Jewish community. And for me, this is definitely also the bias of my parents, but I was like, Israel is good. Peace is good. Great. So I was like, what is going on with this, you know, and that sort of thing. And I think it also just made me realize, sort of looking back, like, how complicated this all is and how something that happens far away can have ramifications for my own life. Um, Then, when I was in high school, the second intifada started. And I would say, um, it affected me because I wanted to go to Israel on a teen study program and my parents wouldn't let me go. I, of course, thought they were, like, the most terrible people in the universe. Now I understand why, mm-hmm. right? I was supposed to go the summer, I think, after 10th grade, maybe. Um, that was, like, the summer we you would go on, like, I think USY or whatever. And it kept getting pushed off after 10th, after 11th, then after 12th, you know, going to college. By then, things had sort of calmed down, and I went on birthright basically the first semester of Brandeis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it definitely just made me sort of aware of obviously things going on in Israel and also how it affected the American Jewish community. Obviously not the yeah. entire side of the story. I felt like I learned a lot more about context later. 
um, and about certain other perspectives, but that was definitely some sort of, I would say, awareness that piqued my interest. Yeah, and it seems like your work has just built, like, been building from there. Um, the focus of a lot of your work and the focus of your newest book centers this idea of gender dynamics in Israeli society. Um, so how is this landscape of Israeli society shifting for women? What's been changing? What's been staying the same? Where are we now? Yeah, so I mean, it's sort of like, where do we begin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in religion and, and how that like intersects with nationalism. So obviously that's relevant in Israel. Mm. And for me, um, I became, I was always interested in, you know, issues of orthodoxy and feminism, sort of where my personal religious journeys had led. And I'm also from Northern Florida, right? So I grew up going to the beach a lot. I remember the first time I went to a separate beach, um, my friend felt more comfortable there. So I was like, great, we'll go there. It was my first year of graduate school or the summer after my first year or whatever. And I went to the place, I went to the separate beach in Tel Aviv. Yeah. I was like, how did this place get here? I was like, this is crazy, right? Um, yeah. And I asked people, and everyone's like, oh, it's always been there. And like, look, I, that's not how history works. Like, yeah. ramps don't fall from the heavens. Like, someone had to, you know, it's a process. Someone had to argue for it, set it up, et cetera. And it was so interesting to me, especially as the fight about gender-segregated buses really picked up yeah. in Israel, to think about the situation that most secular people didn't have an issue with, right? So, like, obviously this is overgeneralizing, but I would say that most secular Israelis don't love gender segregation in, let's say, concerts or on buses mm -hmm. um, or, in, or in the public sphere um, in a way that affects them. But I would say most, if not many, secular Israelis don't really have an issue with gender-segregated beaches. Yeah. And so it's just really interesting to me how this happened, and it sort of all started from there, um, and thinking about these spaces and how things got set up. I will also say at the same time, I'm not Israeli, I didn't grow up speaking Hebrew, um, I learned Hebrew in college, I always wanted to make my Hebrew better. I spent my junior year abroad at um, Hebrew University during the disengagement, which is also a whole nother discussion that we can talk about yeah, but i'm actually I started... going to you next year i'm excited about that oh, oh my gosh we have to talk about that also Roth <laughs> i love the director she's a friend of mine now she's really great um and i still have a whatsapp group for my hebrew you friends oh my god that's awesome years. it's amazing um it's such a good experience uh and i wanted to make hebrew better so i did what i had done in high school which was watch tv um yeah. my spanish teacher in high school was like watch telenovelas to make your Spanish better. And I was like, done. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I started paying attention more to popular culture. I felt like I had to know more. Um, and that became what was the beginning of some of my interest in popular culture, Israeli popular culture as well. I think that's a really interesting question. It's, it's something that I've been thinking is really hard for me to conceptualize as an American. I watched this documentary that was basically about how there was a gender segregated beach and right next to it, a beach for the mm -hmm. LGBTQ community kind of um, yeah. came in. And it was just, yes, I watched That's the exact documentary. It was really funny. It was really like, I recommend the documentary. It's cool. But um, it was... Just this interesting tension between secular and religious kind of interests in Israeli society. And it seems like that's a big focus of your work. I'm definitely interested in it. Um, yeah. But I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost in translation is that these things are not diametrically opposed. 
they're really slippery and they have all different sorts of manifestations. So, you know, I think it's easy maybe for, especially for American Jews, to understand that there are different ways to be religious and observant, right? You can be reform or Hasidic or modern Orthodox or whatever, but there are also different ways of being secular. Israeli secular Jews are different than American secular Jews. Um, and we can talk about some of those ways that they are different. But also, religious people, whether it's in Israel or America or anywhere else, are just as much of a product of society from which they come from. And this is especially true for orthodoxy. And this is, you know, one of my huge pet peeves. You'll hear people say, like, orthodoxy rejects modernity, or orthodoxy is, like, closed off. That's not true. Like, first of all, orthodox people are part of the system like anyone else. And secondly, they are shaped, and to some extent, even their own Judaism is shaped by how it interacts with the state. Um, my focus is mainly on Israel, but there are people who write about this in America as well. So the people that I studied, they decided that, okay, maybe the state of Israel wasn't like their favorite form of government, but that it was in their interest to work with the state to get what they want so they could set up their own institutions, set up something like a gender-segregated beach. Um, and, of course, that changes them as well, right? You can't be in the system without being sort of of, of the system um, as much as you want to try. And similarly, you know, we have these dichotomies. So, you know, Tel Aviv, a city that I love, if you ask a lot of Americans, you're like, oh, it's a secular city. There's no religion there. Well, actually, do you know that Tel Aviv has a historic Hasidic community um, since the 1930s? It's grown smaller, but it's still definitely there. If Tel Aviv is so secular, how come the first separate beach was in Tel Aviv? Um, or how come there was a Haredi um, deputy mayor of Tel Aviv for 40 years? Right? And just to complicate these conversations and to realize that there's a lot more shades of gray and nuance. I think that's what makes this conversation so complex and hard to, I guess, even reconcile. But you're, you're right in there doing the work. Um, and part of the rest of your work is focused on women, minority groups in Israel and their experience within Israeli popular culture. So how did that become a focus of your work? Where are you headed in that direction? Right. So as I mentioned, I started watching Israeli TV mm-hmm. and I started noticing that the same conversations that were happening in American popular culture about representation and politics and nothing about us without us were also happening in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, the first show that really caught my eye was Trugim, um, which is an amazing show. Um, it started in 2008 about um, religious Zionists living in Jerusalem and in their late 20s and early 30s and their dating lives sort of Mm -hmm. sex in the city friends mashup, but a microphone. It was a really fun show. um, And one of the things that I did is with my friend, Sarah Brieger, um, who is is a journalist, is that we decided to recap the show and put this on the internet. Um, This was like the time where television recaps just started. We were inspired by Gossip Girl, which is rebooting soon. Just saw the trailer, Love of My Life. Um, And we decided (laughs) it would be funny if two American girls wrote up their opinions of each episode and put it on a blog. So this is like 2010, right? This is like peak blogging. We were like, no one will read this. We were watching it using like God knows what sketchy internet. God probably downloaded like 30 viruses to my computer. Um, <laughs> whatever. It, I, don't, I would say it was a mini sensation in a certain community. I don't have like any illusions that it made me like super famous or Sarah also. But we got a lot of hits. 
people recognize me at conferences. This Haredi lady in my building in Washington Heights thanked me for the blog because it helped me understand all her modernish neighbors. Um, that is 100% <laughs> a true story. Um, God bless Washington Heights. It's like a middle-aged, like, Breuer's lady who, like, wore shadows all the time. Um, the directors and the people who wrote the show found it. Um, I mean, we were writing in English about a show in Hebrew um, because, you know, we understood Hebrew, but we were doing this for fun. We weren't going to write it in Hebrew. Yeah. And we would write things like, worst Shabbat meal ever, but realistic that someone brought, I don't know, Pashtida, like minus 10 or something. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my interest. And then I just started paying more and more attention. And as Israeli TV developed and became really popular internationally, it just became even more interesting to me to think about. Even though TV is my true love, I'm also interested in sort of all other forms of culture as well. Music, um, I can talk about Israeli Instagram celebrities, um, column making influencers. Um, I'm particularly interested in how like Jewishness and Judaism sort of infuses the Israeli public sphere. And that, that's to some extent a shift from let's say, Israeli culture 30 years ago. Yeah. And another thing that we'd mentioned um, in our conversation before recording was that not everyone in Israel is Jewish and that contrary to the entire rest of the world where we're the minority, Jews are the majority in Israel. How does that affect your work? How does that affect your focus? How does that affect what you're, what you're studying now? So first of all, I think it's really important for American Jews, but really in general, that when we say Israelis, we don't just mean Jews. Um, that we should be really careful about our language. Um, and, you know, the biggest minority um, is the Palestinian community in Israel. This community has a couple of, there's a couple of different names that people use. Some people use the term Israeli Arab. Some people use the term Israeli Palestinian. There is 48 Palestinians. There's a, um, a lot of different terminology. Um, and there are political reasons for using each of them. I tend to switch around for that reason. But that's about 20-ish percent of Israel's population. And, you know, we could talk for a long time about this community, its role in the conflict, um, Israelis who, Israeli-Palestinians who live in Haifa versus Palestinians who, let's say, who live in Ramallah or Gaza. But if you, first of all, if you don't talk about them, you're not getting the full picture of Israel. Sort of like, you know, you can't teach about Jews without mentioning Mizrahi Jews or, you know, X thing. And... You know, they're a huge cultural and important force. So for me, looking at their cultural output, especially because that's what I'm interested in, although, you know, politics and things as well, is fascinating and crucial for understanding Israeli society. And, you know, we can pick like a whole host of examples. Um, I, one person who I'm particularly interested in is a woman named Nasreen Kadari. Um, she is an Arab woman, Israeli Arab, Israeli Palestinian. She became famous because she was on a television show to, it was basically like a version of The Voice, but for Mizrahi singers. So sort of like Jewish, Mediterranean, Arab fusion music. Um, the show was called Ayal Galan is Calling You. Ayal Galan is a, I'll say, problematic Israeli Mizrahi musician. That's for another time. Um, but that's how she was discovered. She won the first season. So here's the question. Can an Arab woman be a Mizrahi singer. And of course, historically, if you look at like music in the Mizrahi world in Egypt and Iraq, um, there's tons of really interesting musicians that are fusing the two. But in Israel, they became separated to some extent artificially. Mm -hmm. um, and she is this fascinating character. She sings now largely in Hebrew. She 
almost converted to Judaism, maybe finished her conversion. The results are a little unclear. Um, but she represents this really interesting sort of fusion character of someone who's really skirting the lines between Jewishness and Arabness. Um, at the same time, there are also Jewish musicians who perform in Arabic. You may yeah. have heard of the group Awa, um, who are this amazing group of Yemenite sisters who perform music in an Arabic and Yemenite Arab Jewish dialect and take these sort of traditional women's songs and just do these amazing interpretations of them. And they're hugely popular. So I think especially it's just crucial and you can't understand Israel without it. And of course, there are other populations as well. Um, and I think, you know, like in any country, listening to minority points of view offers really interesting and important critiques about the society, even if you don't necessarily agree with them, um, or maybe you do. So I think it's really important to listen to these voices, and these, um, which are often marginalized. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's such an interesting point that you brought up, even about music. And I think that way that music can be reflective of like the larger popular culture scheme. I listen to a lot of... Um, like old, um, like Judeo-Arabic music that my grandma, or even in Arabic music that my grandma used to listen to when she was growing up that her parents used to listen to. My grandma showed me the song that she, her mom used to play. Her mom was, long story short, born in Egypt, but that's a whole nother story we're not going to get into today. Um, but um, it's like this 40-minute long song, like love song in Arabic. And my grandma listens to it. And she's like, this is amazing. And I have no idea what they're saying. But it's incredible how these two communities have kind of exchanged culture and continue to in Israel. Um, and that's a, a whole conversation that is, I think, so interesting mm -hmm. to get into. But one thing I do want to touch upon um, in this conversation is the time you spent at the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, because I didn't even think about the idea that the U.S. Naval Academy could have a Jewish studies program. Um, so how did you find yourself teaching there? How did that happen? Yeah, so first of all, um, I was in the Jewish studies program, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, they don't have, they still have some things now, but it wasn't part of a Jewish studies program. Um, mm. I saw an ad I will say Jacksonville is a Navy town. There are two big Navy bases. And so mm -hmm. I grew up familiar with these bases. I actually went to a debutante on one of the bases in the officer's club, a Filipino debutante um, in the officer's club at the Navy base. It was one of the wilder experiences I've had in my life. Um, but it sort of felt like a Filipino bar mitzvah. That's like the best way I can sort of Mm -hmm. to quantify it. Um, so I grew up around military people in a way that I think a lot of American Jews haven't. Um, I was really excited by the opportunity, so I applied and I got the position. Um, I mean, there's so much to say about the Naval Academy. It is an amazing, really special and dear place to my heart. I will say that, as I'm sure you probably know, the U.S., there's a really big divide between people who serve and people who don't. Most of my students weren't Jewish, but because I am who I am and because I taught Jewish-related classes, I met a lot of the Jewish students and I spoke at the Jewish Midshipmen's Club um, and that sort of thing. And they often felt really neglected by yeah. the American Jewish community. And it was really sad for me to hear that um, because they're amazing and doing really interesting and important things. Um, and it was just really funny to talk to them and see where they had all come from. It was also really interesting, especially having coming back from being in Israel for a couple of years, to teach really, really smart students. I mean, the Naval Academy also, I will add, is an elite experience. Yeah. Um, these are people who are become officers, and it's not necessarily representative of the Navy as a whole. Um, that they were really, really smart, 
but they didn't necessarily know anything about Israel or have any context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to really check myself to check my assumptions, to talk about, um, to be really patient in explaining things, but not to be arrogant about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. if they haven't been taught it, if they, I'll back up. Sometimes you'll hear educators complain, you know, X student didn't know why, and I had to explain it to them. Well, you're their teacher. It's your job. Yeah. Like, if it's after the semester, then, like, okay, fine. You can complain that they don't know it. But, like, I had students who couldn't find Israel on a map. I had students who didn't know what Shabbat was Saturday, right? Things I think that we would assume they'll say in our conversations with people. Mm-hmm. But once I was able to explain things to them, they got it right away, and they brought new context for it. Yeah. So I taught history of Zionism in the fall of 2016, so during the Trump election. Mm-hmm. The way I set up history of Zionism was to talk about a kind of nationalism, what makes a people, what makes a nation, you know, who belongs, who's in and who's out. And it became a conversation about all of these ways, things, ways and things to talk about, immigration and belonging and rhetoric. And students brought their own perspectives in a way that was really meaningful for me and challenged my own narratives. So, for example, I had a Vietnamese student uh, first-generation American, and he said when he was reading Brenner, who's an important Zionist thinker, that he felt like he was chan- that Brenner was channeling his Vietnamese grandmother. So I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, every summer they go to Vietnam, right, as a lot of immigrant families do. You spend the summer in the, in the homeland. And he said, all summer, my grandma basically says, your Vietnamese sucks, you, d- you don't know enough about your culture and your homeland, and you eat too much American food. You're not really Vietnamese anymore. You need to move back here. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, when I read about how certain thought thinkers thought, said you couldn't be Jewish in the diaspora, he was like, I thought about my grandma. And it just blew my mind because I don't think Brenner ever thought about the Vietnamese ramifications or like yeah. Vietnamese nationalism. And it just, it made me a better teacher and a better scholar. Um, it's a really special place and a place I can talk about for a long time. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious what the dynamics were like being a Jew, being a woman, being a Jewish woman um, at, at the Naval Academy. Yeah, so in terms of the service academies, which are like Naval Academy, West Point, um, and Air Force, which are the three biggest ones, there's also Coast Guard, can't forget them, and Merchant yeah. Marine, which are pretty tiny. Um, men are definitely still the majority. I'm proud to say that in the Naval Academy is about 30% women. Um, in terms of its uh, the midshipmen, the students, and they are trying very hard to increase that number. Yeah. Um, also, within the past three or four years, the United States Armed Forces has basically opened up everything to women. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that there are women in every position per se, because it can take a time for people to test through. But for example, in the past year or two, we've seen the first female army ranger, just like a sort of an elite unit similar things to SEALs, et cetera. Um, so, there, you know, there are still plenty of issues about gender in the military, um, but especially there have been positive changes. When I interviewed for the position, I met with the one of the deans who was this, like, huge Marine who was like, if you needed to, like, go to Central Casting in Hollywood and be like, we need a Marine, they would find you this guy. He was like, yeah. he not be tall. He was, his hand was bigger than my head when we shook hands. Like, he had a square face. His, like, arms looked like they were, like, sculpted from rock. Like, I looked mm-hmm. up his bio. He had, like, landed a thousand, air, you know, play, 
or done a thousand landings on like aircraft carriers, like had been in Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera. And he looked at me when we interviewed and he was said, how do you model leadership? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, you're a relatively young female and you're going to be in the classroom if you get this job. He's like, at the Naval Academy, we know that you can't become what you can't see. And both for the young men and women who are here, we, want, we would want you to be a model, right? Um, as a young woman who got a PhD, et cetera, even though I'm obviously not military, how would you do that in the classroom? And I was like, wait, this is one of the biggest feminist moments of my life yeah. professionally. And I'm talking about it with someone who is like the most stereotypical male Marine I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. So it is far from perfect. There are definitely issues. But I think because the, the service academies have a mission, and that's to create these future officers, they think really seriously about leadership and about um, the women who serve. It is far from perfect. I had more than one person, people of both genders, tell me about sexual assault. Um, really very, very intense, very complicating, including um, a man tell me about him being sexually assaulted, not a simple thing, and women as well. Um, talked for a long time about those issues, both in the academy, in the military. Um, there's a lot to say there, but it was really exciting and to be part of this place that was shifting and changing and working, I would say, hard, although not always enough, to create female leaders. And in terms of being Jewish, it's really interesting. It really depends. Um, some of my students, you know, came from big cities and new Jewish communities. Um, some, I was the first Jew that they had ever met. Um, my favorite is that there was a, there's a wrestling team at the Naval Academy and they frequently wrestled with Yeshiva University guys, you know, because <laughs> YU has the big wrestling. So more than one of them had been like, oh yeah, I talked about your class when I went to YU this weekend. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what are you doing at YU? Um, that was a crazy conversation. That's <laughs> um, really funny. <laughs> there was, I was also part of creating a um, exchange with the Israeli Naval Academy, wow. which was really fun. Um, so the Naval Academy has exchanges with a bunch of different countries as a part of what you can do for study abroad. Um, so you can go to France for a semester and French midshipmen can come to America for a semester and vice versa. Um, there are actually also non-Americans who study a full four years at the Naval Academy. I had a Cambodian student um, um, in one of my classes. Um, it was really interesting. Uh, but every semester now, every spring semester, I think they do it, um, there are two or three midshipmen who go study in Haifa, and there are two or three Israeli midshipmen who come to Annapolis. Um, and I was part of creating for that, that program, and I also served as a sort of unofficial advisor for that program. So it was really fun. Um, you know, one of the things that came up was, as you probably know, in Israel, on army bases, people tend to go home for the weekend. Yeah. And the head of the international office, programs office was like, are they going to have problems because they're not going to have a place to go? And I was like, they will be the most popular people on the Navy base. Everyone will be fighting to take them home every weekend because you bring home, like, the cute American. Like, are you yeah, kidding? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the stories that they had are so funny. My favorite was when I was there, they had to send these weekly updates. You know, so they're in the spring. They're there during Passover. One of them ended up, they ended up in a fula for um, 
for the end of Passover, you know, which you know is a pretty big Mizrahi city, they ended up at a Mamuna, and they have these pictures of them at Mamuna with the mayor of Afula. They're like the funniest <laughs> pictures I ever saw. So imagine like two American midshipmen, so like college students, and they're white, right, because they're going to like a fancy thing, at a Mamuna, everyone dressed in Mamuna, and this like guy who's the mayor, I was just like, this is it, incredible. It was incredible. That's um, amazing. I will say that, and this is the last thing I can say about this, because I can talk about it for a while, is that one of the places that the U.S.-Israel relationship is the closest is on the military level. Um, there's a lot of joint exercises. There's a lot of coordination. Um, so a lot of the faculty that I had met, because there's both civilian faculty and military faculty at the Naval Academy, a lot of the military faculty had been to Israel, whether it was on leave, whether they had done like joint exercises that they either in Israel or in Europe with Israeli partners, etc. So they didn't always know a ton about Israel as a place, but there was a there was definitely familiarity and interest in it. That's really interesting. I feel like it's a conversation we can have for for hours. The last thing I do want to touch upon, though, because this has been such an interesting conversation, is the way that you're making Jewish history, Jewish studies accessible and interesting to a new generation of people. And so in reading your bio, I found um, like information about um, Hipster Herzl. So I'm wondering like what this is, who this is, what's this project, and what value you see in reimagining Jewish education to be this exciting new thing. I think when a lot of us, let's say in like a Jewish context, learn about Herzl, we read his writings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or we maybe read a biography. What we don't realize is that Herzl was a phenomenon culturally at his time. Um, and he was actually considered really good looking. There are all these stories about women like fainting over Herzl or like talking about how <laughs> sexy he was. Um, Herzl's own personal romantic life is another story. It's weird. I could recommend sources if you want to get into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's a sort of interesting disconnect between his own life where he actually had a hard time with women and his public persona but whatever. Um, He actually changed his facial hair to that full Semitic beard that we know now. And just as now there's talk of like men and beards and virility and masculinity, that all existed at Herzl's time also. And it's part of the story. There's a Bible, it's called the Lillian Bible. It's an illustrated Bible. The the artist's name is Lillian, Moshe Lillian, um, where the heroes of the Bible are reimagined as Herzl. So it's Joshua as Herzl. It's Moses as Herzl. Um, when I was showing images um, of this once, when I taught at Brooklyn College, I had a student who was Haredi. After I showed that to her, she said she was able to understand why Haredim thought Zionism was kfira, was heresy. Because she said, oh, like, what's so bad? Like, Jews living in the land of Israel, okay, like, they're secular, but isn't that a good thing? Then she was, she was so shook that she was like, to see Herzl, the secular Jew, as Moshe Rabbeinu? She was like, that's real kfira. That's real heresy. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that's part of the story, right? Um, there are even some of those illustrations where Herzl is naked and well-endowed. And I mention that not just because it's funny. It's obviously hilarious. Yeah, it's like But because of this, this idea of, like, Zionist masculinity and, like, what it represented. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hipster Herzl thing is part of, um, there's an artist whose name I am forgetting, um, who created this series of images of world leaders as hipsters. Yeah. Sort of reimagined. 
And most of them are contemporary figures. Like he has Obama wearing a man bun uh, and things like that. But he has one for Herzl, where Herzl yeah. is this hipster. And of course, Herzl's visage, right, his face is this iconic image that people are familiar with. And so when I teach about Herzl, I often start with that image. And we deconstruct it and we talk about it because I don't want them just to read Herzl's writings and learn about who he was as this Viennese Jew who found himself creating this movement or continuing this movement. I want them to understand his image, his persona, because this hipster Herzl actually really deeply relates to, to some of the popularity around him at the time. Yeah. And that's not just to understand Herzl fully. It's also to understand the world around them. Right? We all live, especially visuals, we all live in a visual world. We all understand things in different ways. And so when I say, let's deconstruct an image, right? let's look at hipster Herzl and let's look at Herzl as Joshua um, leading the you know, children of Israel into the land of Israel, uh, it helps us understand the images and the things we see around us as well. So it's not just content, but it's also tools. And it's also more interesting for me. Um, those are the things that I'm interested in understanding. Sometimes when we talk about history, we talk about history either top-down or bottom-up. So history top-down is, I think, what a lot of us learn in high school. Sort of great leaders, very often great men, and what they do and who they meet with and the treaties and the wars and that sort of thing. But history is also a history of the people, what everyday people thought and ate and created. And for me, that history is actually a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. And this has been an Absolutely unbelievable conversation. I want to close off with the question that we ask all of our guests. So I want this podcast to be, you know, for everyone listening, but specifically for young women listening, access to mentors, access to incredible women in the field who are doing amazing work to inspire them. Um, What's one piece of advice, like, to the young girls listening to this, like, to your little sister that you'd want to give um, as she's learning to navigate the world as a Jewish woman? I know it's a loaded question. Um, I would say learn as much as possible about the world around you, especially people who aren't like you, um, whatever that means. And the good thing about the internet and Netflix and whatever is that we can do that in all sorts of ways. And it doesn't have to be like big, boring history books. It can be podcasts. It can be fiction. Um, I really think actually fiction from different cultures is the best way to learn about different kinds of people. And to be really curious about the world around you uh, by asking these sort of basic questions and learning as much as we can, I think it can give us a really important and good perspective to sort of keep on going. Well, thank you so much. That's incredible advice. And Dr. Royce, this has been an unbelievable conversation. It's been an honor to speak with you and to meet with you. Um, Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Shana Weiss is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. Honestly, I wish she were my professor. She has such a wealth of knowledge, and we were really only able to scratch the surface of all she could have told us today. But I am so honored to have had the opportunity to speak with her. As the field of Jewish history adapts to modern changes in academia, the schema of Jewish identity is shifting too. There are so many facets of Jewish experience that have for so long gone unrecognized. The contributions of women, Sephardi and Mizrahi history, the LGBTQ community, and more. Dr. Weiss brings these people into the conversation of Jewish community 
in a way that is as interesting as it is relatable. If it weren't already obvious enough, I am pretty obsessed with her. As an undergraduate student myself who focuses on Jewish history, I'm intrigued by this evolving focus on reconciling the modern world with our millennia of tradition. In a sense, that's what inspired this podcast, searching for a way to think about our strength as modern women on the one hand, with our history as Jews on the other. Dr. Weiss makes this balance look seamless. She makes Jewish studies fun, young, and relatable without sacrificing any depth. Instead of seeing tradition and modernity as irreconcilable forces, her work focuses on the way that modernity has manifested in traditionally religious societies. She is a powerhouse, and it was truly an honor to speak with her. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls, hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other Nice Jewish Girls to host on this podcast. Email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. And join us next week when we'll be speaking with Sarah Hurwitz, former speechwriter for both Michelle and Barack Obama, who recently published an incredible book on Jewish connection called Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and the Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. It's a mouthful, I know, but trust me, it's worth it. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. My colleagues Avi and Sara host a weekly podcast you might love called This Week Unpacked. In 15-minute episodes, they explore a relevant and important topic in Jewish and Israel news. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places, like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.